where Dave and I plan this year's company holidays. Let's go through the list. Easter, too religious. St. Patrick's Day? Too white. Mother's Day? Way too cisgendered. All of your usual holidays have been canceled this year. But we still have Karl Marx's birthday! Ha <laughs> Need a real reason to party? Find a new job at redballoon.work. Hey everybody, Michael Thiessen here for Open Mic with Michael Thiessen. And today I have the privilege of having an open conversation with Lisa Bildi. Lisa, it's great to have you on the show today. Nice to see you again, Mike. Yeah, so everybody, just so you know, Lisa and I were first introduced way back at the beginning of the pandemic um, through the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedom when Lisa was there. And uh, now Lisa has uh, moved out and started her own firm, but she has been a great freedom fighter. She's been someone who's consulted us many, many times on the Constitution and um, trying to remember some of our constitutional freedoms. So Lisa, I just appreciate your service to your fellow Canadians so much. And folks, we're going to talk today about how it seems that these mandates that keep coming at us or the recommendations that keep coming at us seem to be a little bit more decentralized now. So Lisa's had a lot of work with uh, Western University or work uh, uh, to taking Western to task in the same way that Liberty Coalition Canada has been representing five students. And so it seems that private institutions are now some of the places individuals are feeling the most amount of pressure. And so I've got some layman questions to ask Lisa and we're then she's going to, you know, kind of direct our conversation as we go. So Lisa, again, thanks for coming on. And here's kind of where I wanted to start. So, so the idea of mask mandates seems to be a broad topic that's going around right now. We see the Hamilton District School Board making, uh, you know, an internal mask wearing policy. Um, the second line of it uh, says it's not required. So I don't know what a policy that's not required means. Um, uh, we see uh, Windsor, the city of Windsor, having some mask mandates return. And so my question to you, and I don't know whether this is relevant or not, but if the province were to return to a province-wide mandate or locally, what what are the what are the are there boundaries to what the 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 health the, the chief medical health officer can do without being in a state of emergency or would we have to remove return to a state of an emergency for these things to happen? Well, remember that we only had the state of emergency for the first part of the pandemic, and then that was when the when the province implemented the um, the emergencies. It wasn't the Emergencies Act; it's the it's the provincial version of it. Um, and the uh, when when that first came in, there's all sorts of rules about how often the the the, um, the cabinet, which is the the ministers responsible for uh, for implementing the government. Um, the, the law, uh, how often they have to go back to the legislature to get approval to continue that that state of emergency. And uh, and so they did that as many times as they could under the legislation. But then, if you recall, they, they, they lifted that state of emergency and then brought in the Reopening Ontario Act, which was sort of a misnomer uh, because not much reopened under it. In fact, it seemed to me at the time it was a backdoor 
continuation of a state of emergency by by then putting in place all of these regulations that were almost identical to what we had previously had. And then that, of course, continued for, I'm not sure of the timelines anymore, but at least a year, I think, um, until last spring when, well, I guess, yes, uh, March or April of 2022, when it was finally gone. Uh, and it's still, I mean, it's its the, the orders, the, the legislation is still there. The orders under it have been revoked. So it could p- potentially be brought back in, I suppose, if it were deemed to be necessary. But there's, um, aside from that, there's already existing legislation in the um, health, um, if you if you look at the, um, the provincial legislation, I assume some of your listeners are at least in Ontario, and that's what I'm familiar with, but the Health Protection and Promotion Act in Ontario also has powers in local, both local um, medical officers of health in order to control outbreaks in their communities, and also the provincial chief medical officer of health has powers there too. So, but, you know, there there are certain parameters. There has to be some level of threat to uh, to, to to take those kinds of steps. And whether individual school boards can put mask mandates in place, well, I think they have some powers under occupational health and safety, but I don't think that extends to the students themselves. So I think that's why they're having some trouble with getting um, any sort of enforcement or teeth behind that. Uh, And so the government is not supporting the reintroduction of mask mandates that we can see, but there are ways that those could occur uh, if there was a particular outbreak that you know, one community or another was trying to resolve or, or get under control. Um, and it doesn't seem like they're all that concerned now about whether these measures are effective. Sometimes it's just a question of, do they look like they're going to help or does it make it look like we're doing something? And so they're brought in often for political reasons as opposed to actually a containment of of, of a viral disease. So, um, and then in terms of like individual businesses, I, I suppose they are free to implement whatever they want for people coming in, into their businesses. Universities may be a little bit different. Uh, although if we want to talk about Western, uh, there wasn't so much the mask mandate that I was involved in, but, but of course, as many of your, your viewers will know, there was a mandate for a booster shot this fall. And it was the only university that had implemented that. And so knowing having been in this space since March of 2020, in terms of pushing back on lockdown and, and mandate measures, in most cases unsuccessfully, we didn't really want to, my colleagues and I didn't really want to get too much into the science because the courts have shown a great deference to the government or to the institutions on scientific questions. Even if you present very compelling evidence to the contrary, they just don't want to touch it. And so we framed our uh, application against Western on privacy grounds, which seemed to be a reasonable argument to make, although we lost at the first instance um, I can talk I'll talk a little bit about what we were thinking there, but essentially the Freedom of Information and Protection of Privacy Act governs institutions, public institutions. So it doesn't govern it doesn't govern you know a, a, a store down the street, but but for those public institutions that are always trying to gather as much information about people as they can, uh, this legislation is designed to protect individual privacy. So. Uh, Western, of course, is is bound by that act, and we were arguing that it did not meet the the legal test under that legislation for why it should be allowed to gather information. So, so basically, um, the the collection of information is prohibited unless by public these public institutions unless they can establish that it's um, statutorily required, 
which arguably it was last year because we did have that reopening Ontario Act in place. And so the chief medical officer of health could issue edicts and we were obliged to do whatever he or she said, right? He, in, in those cases here in Ontario. Um, but this year that legislation is not, is not active. And so, so Western didn't have that to rely on. So the second exception for gathering this information is whether it's necessary for law enforcement, not applicable. And the third one is whether, and this is what we focused on, is whether the information is necessary to the administration of its lawfully authorized activities. Okay, so what are its activities? The provision of public of post-secondary education in Ontario, broadly speaking. And is it um, necessary? And by that, they mean strictly necessary, can't function without it. Well, no, because 22 other universities in the province were capable of of offering their services as post-secondary institutions without needing to have this mandate in place. So, so clearly it's not necessary for that purpose. What the, what the hearing judge said though, was that because Western and all universities have fairly broad powers to make, um, you know, to pass policies on their campus, to govern their campuses, she said the policy that they made, the vaccine policy is their lawfully authorized activity. So you can see all the mischief that that would cause. I mean, if any institution, which is told, no, you cannot collect private information from the public or from students or from whomever, you know, people who use your services, if, you, if you're not allowed to collect that unless you pass a policy, well, all they have to do is pass a policy. We have no privacy rights, right? So it made no sense in my view, view of the matter that um, you would consider the vaccine policy itself to be the lawfully authorized activity because it's a very circular sort of logic. You know, uh, you just, you need, you need to collect this information to have to satisfy your policy to collect information. I mean, it just, it doesn't make a lot of sense. So we had appeal materials drafted and we had just filed them um, the week before Western's announcement. We filed our legal brief, spent a lot of time on that. It was pretty solid. Uh, hoping to get the Court of Appeal to to look at that with, um, you know, with a, a more refined eyes. Uh, but Western dropped the dropped the mandate, which is great, except that it makes our, our appeal moot. This episode has been brought to you by Resistance Coffee. With Christmas fast approaching, our friends over at Resistance Coffee have a wonderful gift idea for the Christmas holiday. Not only does their coffee taste fantastic, but you can also use a little bit of your money to fund the freedom, fight, and liberty in Canada. So look, head over to resistancecoffee.com backslash LCC and give the gift of coffee this season. So here are their two ideas, and I love this. You can purchase something called a little resistance, which is uh, two bags of coffee of your choice, one mug of your choice, a resistance gift bag and some resistance stickers all for $55 plus shipping. But those of us who want to be a part of the big boy club, we can also go over there and purchase a lot of resistance, which is four bags of coffee of your choice, two mugs of your choice, a resistance gift bag and some resistance stickers all for $95 plus free shipping. So I don't want to sound hyperbolic, but if you really love those closest to you, you're going to go get, a little resistance or a lot of resistance at resistancecoffee.com backslash LCC. Make sure to use that L backslash LCC for all your purchases so that they know that we sent you. We're so excited for that partnership. So Lisa, this is kind of exactly where my concern is and why I wanted to chat with you today. 
about these things, you know, for the sake of the, the listeners and, and sharing the video out and helping Canadians be more aware of what's going on. You know, this is a this is the beginning of the conversation for you and me, where way back in 2022, where you sat a bunch of pastors down and said, are you aware of how this violates your constitutional rights? What you just said there seems like I, I want terrifying is is a is a pretty big word, but going to what you just talked about. So a, a private slash public institution, and maybe we can talk about the difference of that because, you know, we're talking about going into stores, we're talking about going to universities, we're talking about going into churches, we're, a- anything where what the judge just ruled against, against uh, your, uh, uh, I, I don't want to say, it wasn't a lawsuit, what was it? What's the technical word? It's an application. Yeah, it was a court application. So a court application. Yeah. Okay. So, so, so it seems to me that there were some parameters on what a school could and could not do. And then, like you just said, you just summarized, well, as long as they put a policy in place now, it doesn't seem like there are parameters. Now, I want to make sure that we we kind of catch the rub of this, though. I, I want to be kind of you know transparent on this side. Like some educational institutions do need to have the right to say this is what we do and if you are unwilling to accommodate or or coincide with that so i'm thinking of i'm thinking of a like trinity western where trinity western and and other many tr- christian schools i know trinity western lost their 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 uh, their application of a law school but still many christian schools around the country still have a code of conduct um most more modern universities would have some type of discipline, disciplinary action where you can't just go and do anything on campus. Um, even West, uh, even Redeemer University right now with the tragedy of the uh, of a student that uh, took their own life is now dealing with the uh, with the the awkwardness of, you know, they they did have a stated position and uh, as, as a, a stated, you know, welcoming environment, and 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 now in the face of of criticism, you know, they're they're having to defend that. Where I want to say, where do we go? But but it seems that we had protections where private and public organizations could only go so far. But now, if I want to go into, a, a, you know, a, I don't know, I want to go get Thai food, the restaurant can say, hey, look, like. It's our policy that you have to show us your vaccine status. Am, am I misunderstanding the level of danger here? And where do we go if it's just a matter of making policies with the recognition that policies are actually in place because institutions, you know, you do have to pay for things when you go into a store. You have to pay what they tell you to pay for for what you're buying. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, let's try and, and break that down a little bit. I mean, Yes, businesses will have certainly, I mean, subject to the Human Rights Code, which which prohibits discrimination on certain grounds, none of which is, by the way, your vaccination status, um, per se. I mean, you could maybe make an argument, and I'm trying to make that argument in, in one case I've got going to the Human Rights Tribunal, um, that, um, you know, the, va- the vaccination mandates have been a violation of religious freedom, uh, or, you know, they're, they're not accommodating of religious or creed grounds. 
um, and, and sometimes there's medical grounds too. But but generally speaking, your vaccination status is not a protected ground. So so um, you know businesses can can restrict people if they want to, or put rules in place if they want to, provided that they don't infringe the human rights code. So you know that that's always been the case. So but it's just that we're seeing we're seeing those kinds of powers um, or, or those kinds of parameters being exercised in ways that have affected a great number of people more more broadly and and with more concern about the propriety propriety of that uh, in terms of institutions well i mean there there is a lot that they can do and yes western does have the power to manage its campus and uh, nobody is questioning that then they have a, a a responsibility to ensure the health and safety of their of their you know campus community but this is where we were getting into the nitty gritty of it with our with our application. Okay, so even if you're not limiting Western to its to its activities as just being providing post secondary education, even if you're saying, okay, their activities include providing a safe campus. So what information? Then then we get down to the question of of what information are they allowed to collect to further that goal? And you can see how there could be all sorts of mischief there. Let's say they decide, you know, we don't want to have uh, sexually transmitted diseases going around on campus. So we need to collect the uh, sexual health of uh, information and, and um, you know, gather all of that information from all students on campus. Or you know, we don't want to have somebody snap and, and shoot up the campus. And so we need to have everybody provide their mental health records to the campus, right? Like, like you know, has to be, there has to be some discussion of how... Um, how much protection of privacy we should have and whether Western or any institution can draft policies that are, that are so broad that they can include this. Is that, or is that information necessary to their activities? And we would say that it is not, but um, certainly, you know, that that's where you go. If all you have to do is draft a policy, you can draft all sorts of policies that would allow you to gather information that would be otherwise protected. And, you know, what we're also getting into is a broader question about institutional power and the fact that, you know, we, d we don't really have as much control over our individual lives as we would like to think we do. There is this layer of bureaucracy that has ballooned in our society over a number of, this has, hasn't happened all of a sudden, but I think everybody has started to feel the weight of that, of that power over the last few years. So, you know, regulation, regulatory bodies, um, uh, you know, other institutions that kind of manage our day-to-day -day lives in ways that we, we didn't always appreciate that they, that they could have, have ballooned and have inordinate powers in, in many cases to, to, govern our, to, to govern us um, and to tell us what we can and can't do. To give you an example, we have regulatory bodies now that are, that are supposed to govern health professionals uh, who are now getting in the, in there and telling them what they can say or even what they can think. You know, there's, there are, we're starting to see uh, a push towards, uh, we had this in the Law Society of Ontario and I was involved in, in pushing back on this, but uh, an obligation to basically compel your commitment to a particular set of principles. Well, you know, why should a legal regulator be deciding what your principles are as an individual? But this is the problem is when these institutions are allowed to grow and they have this incredible mission creep um, and they get beyond what the parameters should be then and and they forget and this is really important is is so many people now and we, we probably this is one of the most discouraging thing for me over the last few years is to see how much the public also doesn't appreciate 
how fundamental and important to our society these parameters and rules are, okay? The rules are we should have free speech, a marketplace of ideas to ensure that, uh, you know, the voices are heard, that we, we don't collectively go off the cliff together because we haven't been allowed to explore, uh, you know, other ideas or other, other approaches to solving problems. Um, and, you know, and also it's, a, it's, a, it's allowing people to protest and allowing people to, to communicate their thoughts uh, is a bit of a pressure release uh, valve, right? So that we don't have a buildup of disgruntled citizens in our society. If we get away from those from those liberal tenants, small L liberal tenants, uh, then we we start to lose. It, it just becomes a free for all. You know, these institutions can then start to to just grab more power, and they don't have to worry about whether somebody's rights are being protected or not. And if our constitution doesn't hold up in these kinds of circumstances, then Again, we start we we just start to go down a path where it, it becomes power based and not and not principle based. So that that's really my concern because even as you're t you know kind of talking out loud about that, let's just go back to let's say Western did want to track the sexual health of its university students and said because you know because we don't want STDs to be prolifically spread on campus, um, which by the way like. Out of out of all the things that they're ever going to track, that's that's not going to be good for business. I, I'm just going to go out there to say that Western is never going to track that. Uh, at least, yeah. Um, but it seems that anybody can make a case when it comes out of this safety safety world. Like it, it almost seems like the fundamental freedoms have been eviscerated. And I'm I'm not trying to be over dramatic, but even as you're spitballing out there, going, well, yeah, like like if if they wanted to, and and you know they basically you know under their privy of of operations is to to create a safe environment. Um, it would seem that it would seem that currently any institution would have the ability to reach right in and say, yeah, it's for the it's for safety, you know, in a in a more humorous way. You know, you know, Twitter kind of co covers the absurdity of this sometimes where, you know, for the last two years, people could ask you your vaccine status. But if you kind of uh, have somebody who's passed away suddenly and you're unsure uh, about the cause of that and, and it's it's labeled as unknown and you just kind of want to know anecdotally, well, hey, you know, had that person received two or three and and how did they feel after that seems to be a cultural taboo you don't ask that question now because that would be an invasion of privacy when wait a minute you've been invading my privacy for two years in order to send my son to go play hockey in a in a uh, in a hockey rink so so it just seems that an institution could almost get away with anything under this idea of promoting safety. And of course, historically, we saw that we've seen that in status countries where that's just a normal, it's just a normal label. You know, we're doing this amount of control for your safety. And then going to your point about, you know, not being able to go to the court and, and talk about science or evidence as to whether or not any of this actually has anything to do with safety so they can implement these policies, but then they don't have to support the validity of the policies in court. Right. I don't want to say it's hopeless, but Lisa, what can we do? Like, where do we go from here? 
you know, I think there might be a common yeah. well, it grace. Is- there, there might be a little common grace for a little bit of time where institutions don't really, you know, your local restaurant doesn't want to infringe this far. But of course, we're seeing over in China, the social credit system being a major problem. Where do we have a legal place to go in Canada any anymore? Well, you know, it is there's a lot of concerning trends. Okay. And so uh, part of that is the fact that and, you know, I've been sort of fighting the culture war, the broader culture war for a number of years. And what struck me immediately, almost immediately, I was concerned about lockdowns right from March of 2020 and expressed that on Twitter and wrote an article in the, I think the Epoch Times or Post Millennial right away in, in March of 2020. And, and everyone at the Justice Center was concerned too, because of course we could see immediately that um, first of all, that people were not necessarily following the, the data that was already emerging uh, and that there was a, under the guise of safety, as you say, a great deal of harm can be done because when people are afraid, and this is what was capitalized on through all of this, they will they will agree to give up their rights and um, politicians and, and institutions will will uh, retain, grab and retain powers that they won't want to relinquish. And maybe that sounds, you know, um, conspiracy theorish, but it's not. It's just it's just a fact of institutional and human uh, no, normal reactions to things. Um, so we, we were treated uh, as though we were, uh, you know, just we, ha- we had to be kept afraid in order to fall in line and, and allow these policies to be implemented. And we know, and you probably talked about this on with other guests, but we know that our governments and, and the UK government has been particularly open about this, use behavioral nudge units to get people afraid. And when people are afraid, yeah, they, they don't think rationally. And it's taking a very long time to get people out of that state. When you go around in your day-to-day life, you see that most people have have moved on. They're not they're not masked, they're not distancing themselves and so on. Most people have started to, you know, to, to move on. But there's a very solid contingent of people who were uh who were very worried about all of this and who are just not, I'm not sure that they'll ever move on. And many of those people are professionals uh, and who have a very loud voice in the media or in the medical profession and so on. They're, they're still fear mongering basically. Um, anyway, to, to, to circle back to the point when, when, um, when you use fear, that, that is a way of enlarging the powers of the institutions. And that was concerning to me having watched the culture war because it became very political very quickly. And so now you have increased powers in the hands of people who are already in control of institutions in uh, ways that are um, very ideological. So, so for example, look at universities, okay? Uh, already it's a culture of um, censorious, uh, you know, um, demands for, for conformity, People are walking on eggshells, ref- fearful of either engaging in uh, scholarship or speaking out on any issues that are deemed to be controversial. I mean, the Overton window of what's acceptable thought is exceptionally narrow, and particularly at universities. So, so now, you, and you've already gotten rid of most of your conservative, classical, liberal, libertarian professors over through through decades of the culture war. Increasingly, over the last it, it, as it escalates over the last you know five or ten years. But then you add COVID and now you've got another, now all your critical thinkers are saying, wait a minute, you know, probably I think to some degree, people who are already 
outside of the institutions who already have come to realize that they are to some degree and greater degree in, in, in certain of them captured ideologically, well, then you already don't trust what you're hearing, right? So um, if you're already kind of off that bandwagon of just implicitly trusting the authorities or the the institutional, the, the administration at your university or the administration of your regulatory bodies or whatever, to be fair and balanced and neutral, if you already don't trust that, you're going to be skeptical of what they're telling you on other things. And so there were a lot of people who, from the conservative, libertarian, classical liberal perspective who said, you know what, I'm not going to take this vaccine. Uh, well, guess what? Now there's another way of calling these people from those, those institutions and, and solidifying the, uh, again, the, 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 the more ideologically, you know, um, inclined people to, to remain in the institution and get rid of the rest. Uh, I think that was to a large degree uh, why Western imposed its mandate as it did, because there was a very loud contingent of faculty who were engaged in contract negotiations right at that relevant time, um, who uh, who were screaming for it. You know, they they wanted they wanted these mandates, and they got and they got one. So, um, because those those institutions do have increasing power, and because what we are now also seeing is something called repressive tolerance in our institutions, and I'll explain that in a second, but uh, what it means is that there are going to be a lot of people who are just outside of those and are going to feel that they have no place to turn, that the institutions don't um, protect them, um, and, uh, and, you know, that it just is going to, because they're not neutral anymore, they are not, there are going to be a lot of disgruntled people, and I think that that is a tenant of liberalism, that our, that our government institutions should be politically neutral, that was so important to protect, but we have let go. And I don't know if we can pull that back, but that is a big concern. So just, just to talk about this repressive tolerance idea, okay, so this is something that I, we've been hearing about some, some, I know you've had Bruce Party on your show, he talks about this, and I think both of us probably first heard about it through James Lindsay, who's a academic in the United States, who's been talking about the influence of some of these uh, think thinkers, if you can loosely call them that, from the from the sixties and earlier, whose whose influences are continuing in the culture war. So one of those is Herbert Marcuse, who wrote an essay in the nineteen sixties uh, called um, the I think it was called, it was called um, it was it was he talks about repressive tolerance. I don't remember if that's the title of the of the piece or not. And when what that basically means is that any um, any movement from the far left, the radical left should be tolerated and anything to the right of that should be suppressed, okay? So what we're seeing that is, we're, as James Lindsay says, we're living in Marcuse's world. And what we're seeing now is very much that. So, and this was evident right away in June of 2020, and you will remember this well, because this is probably around the time we first became um, familiar with, with one another. And that is the churches were all being, were all shut down. I think they had very limited capacity limits um, and, and were being more aggressively targeted. Meanwhile, we had the Black Lives Matter movement in June of 2020. We had freedom protests that were being ticketed, but we had uh, we had Black Lives Matter movements that were not being ticketed and not being um, suppressed in any way. So, you know, there, and then when public health officials, some 1,200 of them, came out with a letter, an open letter in the United States saying that racism was a serious public health issue and as a result, the protest should be not only allowed, but encouraged, in fact, 
Um, you know, that was a prime example right there of repressive tolerance, okay? This gets a pass because it fits with our ideological bent. Everything else does not. It does not fit, and therefore we must clamp down on it extremely hard. We saw this as well when, uh, you know, one of my then clients when I was at the Justice Centre was uh, the Church of God in Elmer, which was having outdoor services. Okay, again, what transmission was negligible at, at best, uh, outdoors. And we knew that it was even in the evidence of the Ontario government's expert uh, when we had a lawsuit about that. But that didn't matter. They were ticketed. They had police drones flying overhead over their church services outdoors and because they were locked out of their church. And, uh, and they were being heavily fined and brought into court for contempt for having these outdoor church services. Well, guess what? Just, you know, 40 minutes away in London, because there was a tragedy that occurred within the Muslim community, uh, uh, which you know was was horrible, and it, politicians wanted to to show their solidarity with the community on that, quite rightly. But what they did was they stopped the um, implementation of all of the rules for London. They they passed a regulation that just applied to London to allow that event with ten thousand people to occur outdoors. Uh, at the same time, as 40 minutes away, people are being clamped down on and, you know, treated entirely differently for having a different reason to gather, right? which was not approved. So when you see those double standards, and we're seeing that sort of level of hypocrisy all over the place, but in particular, the way that rules are being applied unfairly or, or dis disproportionately between groups, depending on their views and their cause, that is repressive tolerance, and that's the world we're in. So if people are starting to feel like, hey, that's not fair, well, it isn't fair. It isn't fair. And that is and that is a problem when our institutions stop being neutral. Our governments, um, in, in the way that they implement policies, are no longer neutral. Well, that, that is a problem. The trucker convoy is another very good example of all of this, right? If that was a different movement, uh, it would not have been treated the, the way that it was. It would not have been assumed to have the ill intent uh, and you know all of the negative baggage, baggage associated with it that that it was, um, so anyway that's that's where we're at and I think we just need to remember that um, if you are coming from the right and by right I mean anybody to the to the slight right of far repressive left you are going to be judged more harshly and you just need to be you, you need to have that in mind I'm not saying that you shouldn't act. Uh, and speak and and you know live live by your own convictions, but just understand that the rules will not be applied fairly across the board, at least the way that things are evolving. Um, so you know you can say all kinds of horrible things on Twitter, and nothing bad happens to you if you're coming from the from the repressive left. But uh, you know hopefully this is changing. But if you say something to to counter that, you'll be in trouble. Uh, I'm seeing this with with regulatory bodies now getting involved in the speech um, transgressions of their of their members, whether it's on COVID or whether it's on on gender issues, you know, now they are beginning to police the speech of, of their members um, in political ways. So you've got fear mongering doctors on one side who are saying things that really don't have any support in science, who seem to get a pass. And then those who question lockdowns or mandates being hauled before the tribunals. So Anyway, those are lots of examples of this repressive tolerance, and it goes to fundamentally a capture of our institutions on a on a broader level um, that's been going on for a long time, but which COVID has made more people aware of. 
But unfortunately, as I look around the general public, I don't see that people are either A, concerned about it, B, uh, willing to, you know, actually many of them are in support of it, uh, frankly. They're, they're, people want to, seemingly want to be governed very hard, right? <laughs> so, and told how to, how to behave. So I, I've been feeling a little bit discouraged when I sort of see the public response to a lot of these things. Uh, supporting, for example, if, if in fact CTV can be believed on this, which is another whole issue, uh, supporting the the invocation of the Emergencies Act in, in Ottawa. If that, in fact, is the general public's view of of the situation, I, I think that doesn't really bode well for this country. So, Lisa, I'm really trying to parse things out for our listeners because, again, regulations and policies are in place usually to protect both the institution and the individual. So, um, I we we've talked about the infringement. I, I, I try to, I want to approach this from the other side and then, and then just so people have a really balanced understanding of it. So again, as a, if, if I'm a pastor in a Christian church, there are, th- there are policies and there are requirements and privileges I can give and grant to members that if they decide to, to, accept those privileges, they get those privileges. And then if they decide to um, violate uh, our, our agreement upon membership, they then can receive church discipline, uh, be, uh, you know, be dismissed from membership. Um, I would assume the same thing would happen for virtually almost every religious order. Now, it, it seems a little bit cut and dry because those are relationships where individuals are voluntarily associating themselves with and voluntarily agreeing to these policies. When, when I am engaged with the government and when I am engaged with like, let's say the health, the, you know, the the health industry, it, it doesn't seem like I have that same free association. Like I, I, I have, I have doctors who have one regulatory body. They don't have nine associations and, and it's socialized medicine. So it's not like I can go to one hospital and get one policy and then go to another hospital and get other policies because they're, you know, free operating institutions. So, so before we move from the one thought to the other, can we go back to what are valid institutional protections like valid um, legal ways that intertu- institutions are protected from being coerced into an individual changing the shape and culture of an institution so that it no longer represents what it ought to represent. So, for example, somebody coming into my church and saying, no, there anyone can get married. Uh, we want to promote pedophilia and we want to promote uh, you know, polygamy and we want to, you know, you name it we want to promote it here at this church. And I would say, no, that's, that's, that's not happening because of these things. So, so what is a, what are the legal um, parameters for an institution to be able to protect it, to protect itself? Well, we have to draw a bit of a distinction, right? So a public institution is going to be different from your church institution, right? So you will have, a certain ability to control what happens within your own organization and um, disciplinary measures and so on. 
and courts are fairly loath to get involved in voluntary associations and, and rule on uh, on things within you know a, a church body. It doesn't mean it doesn't ever happen, but um, but generally speaking, those are those are decisions you can make within your own community. Uh, there will be there are some wrinkles. Um, you know, uh, you still can't violate the human rights legislation. Um, there's there there may be some exceptions for groups that are coming together for particular purposes. I, I, you know, I have to have specifics to so don't take this as legal advice. The question is is obviously there are good institutional protections, and then there is what we're seeing. Um, maybe could you just explain the difference, or you you know what I mean? Like I don't, I you're right. I don't need to get into the specifics, but it's like I think on our side, our side is accused of. You know, you you, um, you want your cake, uh, and 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 yet you want to eat it too. In the sense of, like, you as a church want to protect yourself, but you don't want a university to be able to protect itself. That that's kind of the it's it's a it's a genuine question of the balance between institu- institutional protections and and private individual rights. So. Um, Right. Well, I mean, if, if that's, different yeah. rules are going to apply to different institutions, right? So, so when we were talking earlier about the protection of privacy legislation, well, that wouldn't apply, you know, to, to your church, for example. Um, that is one angle where Western is um, governed by legislation because it is a public institution and it's specifically required to to follow that legislation. So, there'll be different protections for and and different rules for different types of institutions. Um, generally, the you, churches are going to largely be free to govern themselves as they see fit but um and and courts are not likely to intervene because those are voluntary associations uh, and they're not publicly funded um so you know the parameters will be different Uh, and yes you know you may be accused of of um not being inclusive and and what have you uh, i suppose in, in a church but that is sort of your prerogative in that private institution to associate with people who share the same views and same religious convictions and so on um but but a, a public institution uh, for example a regulatory body is supposed to be neutral and should not be sort of regulating some people more harshly because they don't share a similar orthodoxy uh, and this is kind of where we're going with some of these some of these things. We saw this with the Law Society, uh, expecting that lawyers would promote equity, diversity, and inclusion in their practices and in their personal lives. And it wasn't just it wasn't just acknowledging that those were were um, important values, which which was again I think an overreach in and of itself because your principles are your own principles that you come to through you know your own personal growth and reflection. So someone else telling you what your principles are uh, in order to practice law, I think is, is, is certainly an overreach, but compelling you also to become an activist is, is what they were, you know, for those causes is, is what is where that was going. And, you know, well, what, what are, what are those words mean? And what are you implying by that? What, what is meant by equity? And, and, you know, for example, equity is sort of a, uh, it's an equality of outcome concept. It is not the traditional form of equality that many people think. They're not synonyms, okay? So equality means, the traditional uh, formal equality means every person is is to be treated the same under the law. So, you know, um, you, you stand before the law, the justice is blind, right? You see the, 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 the 
image of, of Lady Justice with her blindfold, because you're not supposed to be looking behind to see who the person is, and you're supposed to treat everybody equally. Everyone is equal under and before the law. That's the that's a tenant, a fundamental tenant of liberalism, again, that we are getting away from. And when we get away from those rules, if they're not applied properly, the, then you know people become critical of, of liberalism. But it's it's the, the rules themselves are reasonable and, and necessary. They're tools to, to have a, a functioning society, especially in one where there are so many diverse opinions and backgrounds and you know it's multicultural and so on, to have these these rules that Free, certain fundamental freedoms that should not be ever tampered with and certain parameters like equality under and before the law, those are so essential. But we've moved away from those now to this idea of equity, where we now have to examine the group that somebody's a part of. And we, we it, it encourages, in my view, more of a tribalistic thinking where it's group against group or um you know, this group gets privileges because they were historically disadvantaged. And well, this group doesn't get any privileges and doesn't even get to to have equality before the law because they, you know, don't come from the right group. That that's kind of where we're where we're going with a lot of this. And and so if we if we think that equality and equity are are synonymous, well, I mean they they aren't. And what was being asked of us to promote in in the legal profession was equity, and equity is equality of outcome. And it and you cannot have freedom. And equality of outcome they are completely inimical okay because you need to force things to happen in society to achieve equal outcomes if that were even possible and my my goodness these things have been tried and, and, and spectacularly failed with millions dead we never talk about the consequences of of equity uh, it taken to its extremes right but but that's what we're playing around with again right so when institutions start demanding ideological concepts like that be instantiated, to be be enforced, be coerced amongst the the members that they regulate to um, to promote. Even if you are, as as I am, extremely comfortable with having a, a very diverse country and diverse profession and and so on. I, I, I like to think though that the diversity continues to extend to, to differences of opinion. Um, and I'm not going to therefore agree to promote a very narrow. Um, definition of any of those terms where where diversity really means uniformity of thought if you are with us if you think like us then you're sufficiently diverse if you happen to be a person of color and think differently conservatively for example um you're, you're going to be thrown under the bus you're not you're not really a diverse you're probably you know a white supremacist secretly or something and that's that's how this ideal ideology has been manifested in has been has manifested in these institutions that we are now that are supposed to be neutral that are supposed to govern everybody uh, equally without without getting into their, um, you know, judging their, their thoughts and beliefs. So church is one thing, a regulatory body is entirely different. And we're forgetting that the, those are not institutions, just because they happen to be controlled by people of largely that ideological persuasion, they are not their institutions to control and direct in, in a way similar to a church, which is in fact how they are being, uh, they are being, administered in many cases you don't agree with this if you're not if you're not woke you can't be a lawyer if you're not woke if you don't agree that um uh, you know got a case out west right now i'm in the middle of um it where where the college of nurses has said if you uh, express the opinion that there are only two sexes that's discriminatory 
wait a minute, that's an ideological position. That is not a scientific position, that's an ideological position. And so you are now then going to be implementing or enforcing your ideology on your membership. If you don't agree, if you're critical of, of gender ideology, maybe you don't get to be a nurse, is, is what they're saying. Uh, that is religious doctrine in, in the broad sense of the word, but it's being implemented institutionally in, in places where, where they should be neutral. Your church doesn't have to be, doesn't have to be neutral. Okay, that that's helpful in one sense of making the private public distinction and then you know, it, it's also just observationally a reality that I, ideology drives individuals and maybe maybe some of those things that we would refer to as traditional or some of those – of course, those traditional things were trying to be protected in the Constitution, correct? Or uh, like that, that's, that's, that's why we have a – that's why we have a, a code of law, and, and it just seems that those rules are being ignored. Now, maybe those rules came about from a non-neutral position. Maybe maybe those rules came about because uh, there was a, um, a Christian understanding of law, and when we get the concepts of justice, and like all of these ideas of justice come from ideologies, and now there's all of these competing ideologies saying, we want to rewrite things. But the reality of it is, it is a rewriting. It's a rewriting of our of our constitution or our behaviors under the constitution, and it's an it, it, it's a willful willful ignorance or willful disobeying of what what we would have written down as governing laws for this country. But let's so, let's just take this. Let's just broaden this out a little bit to uh, understanding what it is that our constitution protects, because I. You know, liberalism, and again, I, I'm referring to classical liberalism, the principles that, you know, that John Stuart Mill wrote about, um, you know, the principles of the Enlightenment, where every human has has moral worth and is to be treated equally under and before the law, where we don't have separate rules for, for separate people. We don't treat people as lesser than. Um, those, those are not, and, and then what flows from that, the, the other liberal principles, are I view them as tools, not so much as an ideology, okay? The tool, when, when we have people with different views, and this is what came out of the Enlightenment, and again, um, it's a reaction in some, in some ways to, to um, times where the church was oppressive to, to people who had different views, you know? The Reformation came out of a belief that, that the Catholic institution had become corrupted, and you know we've had many different uh, spin-offs in in Protestantism from from those early days too, where where people have, want to have a, a, a different um, perspective on scripture and, and and different ways to manage themselves. And so um, we also don't want to have a situation, I don't think, where 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 the for example the, the church decides what everybody has to think and believe. And and so coming under the Enlightenment. The reaction to that was, well, look, let's protect the right for people to have their own opinions on things, the right to, to have their own views, to worship as they see fit, so that they're not bound by one definition of how you have to worship or whether you have to worship at all. And, and that you can have your conscience because you are um, a distinct individual. With, you are not a serf. You are not a, the property of the, of the state, of the institutions, of, uh, of you know, of, uh, of some the monarchy or whatever, you're your own individual and you have autonomy to be able to have 
to hold your own beliefs, opinions, and that's what we're protecting. So it's not protecting an ideology, it's protecting the ability to have your own ideology, okay? So that, so that you can believe one thing, I can believe something else, somebody else can believe something else, but we're all governed by these tools which place no hierarchy and allow us to, uh, to within that, that system, find our own meaning in life and go our own path. You know, I think that's, that's something that's worth protecting because what I do think that people, um, most people have their own sort of ideological framework. Um, but the way that you in a free society get along is by not delineating which ones you're allowed to have, which ideology is going to prevail. So that's why the neutrality of institutions is so important. And that's why people need to recognize that a lot of the stuff that's coming through is in fact its own sort of religion. And it's being now shoved down the throats of everybody, whether they like it or not. And so, you know, when we talk about common, the common good um, and, and, you know, these are utilitarian ideas that can be very dangerous too, because well, who decides what that is, and why can't I decide for myself? Uh, and it, I also want to reiterate that these tools fit within the framework of the rule of law, and as long as your government is, um, you know, there's proper democracy, there isn't um, corruption, undue influence, um, you know, that there's a separation between the the levels of government that that's actual, that there is no infiltration and. In, into the police and, and the judiciary and, and all of these are doing their jobs properly, which is part of the problem that we have is that a lot of institutions aren't doing their jobs properly. We're seeing this in the United States right now, the infiltration, it would appear, of the FBI into uh, into the business of, you know, determining what people's views can be on Twitter. So, um, you know, these are problems, okay? It doesn't mean that the overall framework is wrong. It means that it's become corrupted. And we need to kind of come back to those liberal tenants in order to ensure that we can, that our institutions are doing what they're supposed to be doing and that people are uh, not being corralled into having certain totalitarian views that everybody must hold. Anyway, rant, rant over, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, this is a good conversation. I, I think, I think this, when we, when we look historically, you know, if, if I were to look back to, you know, Alexander the Great, like you said, the Reformation, um, what you would say the enlightened, you know, you, you might say that the enlightenment branched off of the reformation. I might say the enlightenment secularized the reformation, but the ideas that the, but the ideas, uh, the Magna Carta, you know, um, that the ideas for human rights were, uh, in essence of Christian value. Um, and then, but let, let's get to a place where we agree. So let's just say, I would say that the, the enlightenment secularized those ideas and you might say the enlightenment helped popularize those ideas. But the point of it, the point that I was trying to make there earlier was that um, these ideologies, these status totalitarian ideologies that are, that are, you know, coming out of Marxism and you, you know, we talk critical theory and all of these types of things, they are an offense to our rule of law in Canada and offense to our constitution, like our constitution and the rule of law that was set up were not set up underneath these tenants. And so what you, what you see, and, and this is, I think the point that you were making and what I'm agreeing with you on is that with this change of religion um, to now a secular religion, to now a, a secular ideology, 
you are actually seeing now the change of law and whether or not now it's just the the ignoring of the the rule of law in Canada it's still a problem when you're a Canadian trying to operate saying okay well wait a minute I thought I thought that I was to have I thought that my protest was to have the same freedoms that that protest had like so for example you know when when we were ticketed as a church I remember saying to the chief of police which you know, whether or not I was talking to the chief of police uh, before I had been ticketed was a wise thing as as far as indicting myself. But I said to him, why is it that you're not sitting out here protecting us? This is a protest. This is we, we, we've, we've told you that this is what we're doing and we are doing this in order to worship freely. Why don't you park a car out front and anybody who decides to get excited that our church is meeting, why don't you say, hey, wait, they have they have the freedom to protest in this country. Like you're literally doing that. 20 minutes away for the BLM riots, or I shouldn't say BLM riots in, in, on, in Canada, they're, they're not that I'm aware of, the BLM protests. Um, why am I not being treated fairly here? Um, so the point that I was trying to get was that um, whether or not you and I want to talk about the foundations and where philosophically or theologically they've come from, certainly this new totalitarianism, this authoritarianism, this inter um, interweaving of all of the institutions we are seeing a religious change and therefore we are seeing a, a, a legal change and it is having effect on the ground yeah well i agree with you uh and you know the 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 courts are downstream from the culture right so you know if the culture is going in a certain direction um you know the the court's Judges and, and and lawyers are a part of that culture, and uh, and and it starts to, to seep in, and it starts to to manifest in the decisions. And I mean, your Trinity Western case that you talked about before was an example of that, where where charter values that that aren't written in the Constitution, aren't written in the Charter, were given um, precedence essentially over over what what in fact was written. And so, who does who defines what those charter values are? Well. You know that's it's coming out of out of the culture, um, and so yes, it, it it is having an impact. I think we've gotten a long way. I mean, when I talked about equality, that really isn't the law in Canada anymore. It hasn't been for a long time. The we used to the the charter says that in Section fifteen one that um, you know every person is equal under and before the law, and then in section subsection two it it has uh, exceptions for uh, certain situations where substantive equality is, is necessary, but now it's over time uh, with some of the earlier decisions from the uh, Supreme Court of Canada, uh, it, that has become the first uh, approach, right? So we don't really have that equality under before the law anymore. It's been, it's been judicially undermined, I guess you could say, in favor of, of, a, of a different view. So yeah, what do you do? Well, I mean, so then we have, we have a broader societal problem, which is for the people who do feel that this new religion, this new state religion is not, uh, you know, something that they want to live under, where, where do they go? What do they do? Um, and that's a very difficult problem, right? So, so can you, can you go and start your own communities? And then, you know, to me, that brings about a whole slew of other problems too. I mean, we, we really, we had, we, I think we had sort of a sweet spot in terms of, of having the, 
and again, nothing is perfect. No historical period in the past, um, you know, is, is perfect by any means. But oftentimes it's, it's the abuse of what should be um, fundamental principles, I think, that, that cause the problems, not the principles themselves, if you see what I mean. Yeah. So, okay. I'm going to try to tie this all together and wrap it up because I think we've gotten to the heart of why I was asking you maybe about the distinctions between private and public and, and the distinctions between an institution having some legal protection from the individual, but also the individual having some legal protection from the institution uh, because we are asking, what do we do next? And so, Lisa, you have in some respects, answered that question for Canadians. Um, and I'll, I'll let you re-summarize this. So we're going to try to do this in part A and part B. So if I were to if I were to hear from you what I think you've heard, and feel free to re-summarize it, we need to return to the Constitution and we need to return to our rule of law uh, because that was a great blessing. And you, you just said sweet spot, and I agree with you on that. And the way that we likely need to do that is for Canadians to wake up and claim that as a public, like uh, uh, as individuals, vote for individuals who are going to promote that, you know, freedom of speech, protest, uh, uh, you know, share your ideas, try to compel people and influence people towards that, to that towards that way. And that would be answer A. W would I would I be correct in having understood you? as we've kind of dialogued about that, because people are saying, what do I do? And one of, one of the things you're saying is, duh, we return to the law that we already have. Um, let, let Summarize that uh, if you want to repeat yourself or, or summarize it. Yeah. I mean, that is certainly a part of it. You need, you need the general public to, uh, to appreciate and understand how important these things are and not to be dismissive of them. But, you know, I'll, I'll be honest, Michael, um, after particularly like throughout COVID, but particularly in, you know, after the convoy earlier this year, when you saw so many people, and again, I know Twitter is a microcosm, uh, but it, but it is that it's it does. I think it might not be everybody on there, but you get a sense of at least some people's perspective, and you might not have seen that in earlier decades. We know well, we didn't know what everybody thought. Actually, I like that too. I like that world where you could talk to people, you could you know. Uh, join the Kiwanis Club or whatever, and you'd have conservatives and liberals and labor guys and, and you know, whatever, uh, all getting along just fine because you really didn't talk about politics. Those were good rules to live by. Don't talk about politics. Don't talk about religion. Those are, this my mother told me, you know, 40 years ago. And, and I, I wish we would return to that, frankly. But now, unfortunately. Although I will push you back a little bit and say that's why we've gotten to where we have because we didn't talk about it. And now we're left with a brand new religion. Anyways, I'll <laughs> let you have that. I'll let you have that. Well, maybe so, but but now we see what everybody thinks, and so for good and bad. Uh, but I have to say that that has increased my cynicism about the ability of us to fix the culture, because the fact that so many people think that free dumb is dumb, um, you know, it's it, that that's that's a bad place to start. If if they already are happy to have the state manage down to the minutiae of their lives, telling them what they can put on their face or not put on their face. Uh, you know, telling them who they can associate with, who, who they can have over for their Christmas dinner, um, you know, all of these things. If you are allowing that, if you're if you're accepting of that and you um, see no problem with it and that anybody who would oppose that is dumb, um, you know, we've got a long way to go. And I'm not sure, frankly, if that is the ethos in this country 
that we are going to be able to change the culture. I, I actually have very serious doubts about that. So the only way that you can try and do that is to continue to speak up. That's why censorship needs to stop because you need to be able to get other opinions out there and expand that Overton window and let people hear other viewpoints. But we're in echo chambers at the moment where there are different facts, different realities, different, it's not even just different opinions, it's literally different facts, different science, different everything in the, in the echo chambers. We're living in different realities. And so how do you bridge that? Um, and you know, if, if, if there's a, a large enough segment of the population that is, is uh, quite happy to live the way that we've just lived for the last few years, or uh, not courageous enough to speak out against it, or just oblivious to it, or, or accepting of it, or too busy to think about it, whatever, you know, the reality is we aren't going to be able to stop it or turn it around. And I think that, frankly, is where I'm starting to, to land in my thinking. So then, the, so then what do you do, right? So, so then it's the part B is, 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 okay, so then what? Do you, do you find your own like-minded community somewhere? Do you, you know, and, and I know people are thinking along those lines um, and, they're, and they're physically uprooting to go and find like-minded people that they can be around. Maybe a more favorable government, maybe somewhere in the States, maybe, maybe uh, you know, a, a municipal area that, that tends to, to, to attract more, um, and by municipal, I mean like small, you know, big cities are kind of lost, but but find a community where, where people tend to be more favorable to these things. And, uh, you know, th th those are uh, those are things you can do and, and find, um, you know, start small schools. I think, honestly, you want to probably get your kids out of the public schools if you think that you are of this different mindset, because they're, they're certainly being taught the other way. Um, so, so those are active things that maybe you can do. I'm not sure that they are uh, going to solve all the problems either. We still have a, a broader overarching infrastructure that, that will not let you get too far with that. I mean, I can't go and start a legal guild. I can't, we can't go and start a, a special guild for doctors. That, that has to happen legislatively, legislatively, and I don't think that that is going to be happening. This episode has also been brought to you by Rocklink Investment Partners. With Inflation at a 40-year high and economic stagflation on the horizon, growing and preserving your hard-earned capital is of utmost importance. Rocklink Investment Partners understand the investment challenges of today. Rocklink is an independent investment management firm focused solely on creating portfolios of high-quality businesses. Anchored to the time-tested principles of value investing and not shy away from essential businesses that do not meet the world economic form definition of ESG. So email rocklink with a C at info at rocklink.com or visit them at www.rocklink.com. That's rocklink with a C.com. I, I really appreciate the, the tension and stress that you're feeling on that because, you know, usually our answer would be, well, yeah, let's go build some institutions that will shine. You know what? If, if when when you have such a divergence of mind, and and I I really like the description that you use. Like it's a different universe. It, 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 you you you're it's becoming a greater divide, where you and I um, can sit in a room and have differences of opinion, and and yet you and I are going to agree on so much when it comes to the way that we want people treated in society. Um, it, it's, it's changing out there. And so typically the answer would be, well, let's go build our own schools. Let's go build our own hospitals. Let's go build our own 
legal guilds. Let's go build our own associations of engineers so that when the two worlds collide, we've got a, um, I, I want to say like a body of work, you know, when someone says, oh, you know, you, you, you can't design that bridge because nobody said that you're competent. You go, wait a minute. Like, you know, here's, here's our portfolio of what the association has been doing and whatnot. And, and the point to that would be that over time, those places would just shine because you can't go against creational norms. You can't go against the, you can't go against the laws of the universe and that work. We've seen this time and time again. Um, I, I truly believe that God has created the world with parameters and you just, you know, you, you can, you can pretend like they don't exist, but they do. And there, and therefore these types of different associations will shine. I'm sure you've heard the joke of everybody's like, I kind of want to just be like an Amish farmer with a little bit more technology. That's kind of the average individual right now is going, I, I kind of, maybe they had it right. But the point is that in Canada, the legal environment, like you just said, doesn't allow for all of that. Right. And that really is so, so, so realistic, like seriously, on just an, on like a learning level, is there a way to create informal legal guilds? Is there a way to create just places where, where we can train another generation of lawyers that at least think differently, even if they've got to follow the other, mm-hmm. um, you know, rules of engagement at times to to practice law like yeah because uh, I mean, we want to be institution building right and i and i don't mean to suggest that we ought not to continue with those with those tasks and i think you're right uh over time you know when when all of this comes to pass and it will because everything is sort of cyclical we'll, you know we're going to go through a difficult period for a while i'm not quite sure what the other side is going to look like but but you know, as we were told by writers who who went through earlier totalitarian periods, what they said was important to do was to build those alternate institutions and allow them to continue to you know to try and keep them flourishing during this period as a way of drawing in those who are um, you know who who share your 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 um, perspective and and to allow communication to continue to allow basically an oasis in the middle of a, of an otherwise sort of totalitarian landscape. And so I think that's, that is important. I don't think we should not do those things. I just, you're right that the overall infrastructure is still going to bind us to some degree. And I think it is sort of an impulse that we have. I've been struck by this for many, many decades, actually, when, uh, you know, back in uh, um, probably the early late eighties, early nineties, when there were sort of um, what I thought were, were competing tensions in the world. There was a greater gr- move towards global um, governance and superstructures, right? But at the same time, you had balkanization of countries and, and people getting into smaller and smaller nationalities. And, and you know, there's there's a, I think there's a fundamental sort of, um, I don't mean this in a negative way, but a tribalism to, hum- to humans where we wanna be around our own people. And, and in those, and, and again, I don't, don't don't misread what I'm just saying there. It's it, I mean people who share your views, right? It's not it's uh, or or your way of life, right? It, um, I, I'm not sure that that's a tension that works well with the increasing trends towards globalization. Uh, they, they're they're always at odds. There's always a tension there, I suppose. And some of the ideas. Well, I, I can I can articulate that really well because I know what you're trying to say there, Lisa. And it's actually let, let's just go to the image of the of the physician and the individual where um, you want your physician to look at you 
and go locally and personally, I'm going to advise you and treat you the way that you locally and personally need it. Mm-hmm. Not, hey, I got Lisa here. I've never met her. Uh, Jim, you're over in um, Brussels. Uh, can you tell me how to treat this right. patient that neither of us have ever met? Right? right. So when you're talking about that tension, it is local representation, yeah. which, of course, we saw within the, the, the development of the U.S., local representation, local taxation, um, you know, local services, all of those things that that is actually a real thing. So you you don't have to even fall into um, the shared values other than we, we agree upon how we're going to live in society they, that, that is needed. We, we have an agreement on how we're going to treat each other. And of course, that goes back to all of the things we've been talking about. But yeah, no, it doesn't have to do with ethnicity or gender or any of those things. You, you, you can have a very you know, multi-ethnic uh, uh, location yeah. where you're, you're, you're working, but the idea is you want to be locally known and locally represented. Right. And then people feel that they have a little bit more control over their own lives, right? If it's something coming from, right. from the UN or from the WHO or from the WEF or whatever, telling you what, what you know, that doesn't necessarily translate. And, and I think people feel sort of instinctively, is kind of what I'm trying to say, towards a more localized community. So it's not so much tribal, it's just more localized, right? Because your needs are met more locally. But there's dangers, you know, I, I hear that uh, sort of... Um, comment frequently that, oh, we should just be more like the Amish. And and there's lots to be said for, for that lifestyle. And in fact, I have Mennonite background that I've only recently become aware of, but I've always had a soft spot for the, for the Mennonites. But, you know, the reality is um, in those communities, they, there's a certain um, doctrinal adherence you must have, or you'll be shunned from the, from those communities, right? Like you can't just kind of wander in and be a complete individualist. There are there are rules. There is a way of life that must be followed, and, and there's a lot of benefit to that. Um, we haven't quite figured out how we can have um, voluntary communities that achieve the same thing. And I, you know, there's there's some interesting things to maybe think about it and, and have another conversation about. I know there's a, a movement to sort of a voluntary, um, you know, but but localized um, community building. But you know, how do you kind of keep? How do you keep? I think you just bring in those tools that we've talked about, those sort of those liberal tenants and still have parameters. So it's not a free for all, but but you have a, a structure of a rule of law that people agree to. And, and you um, and then you respect individualism within that. I don't think that the Amish are quite doing that exactly the same way. Right. Because you, you, you would not be able to to challenge the, the, the you know, the precepts that, that they're governed by um, not successfully. So anyway, there's. There, there are things that we can try and we can do, but I, and then, but as some of those measures globally start to take hold, it'll be harder and harder for people to do that successfully because the government, if they, if, if you don't, if you can't use your own money and you can't, you know, if the government is in control of, of uh, digital currencies and and can turn it off at, at will and can, you know. Um, spy on you with drones and, you know, doesn't respect your privacy. If all those kinds of bad things come to pass um, and, and you need a, you need a physical pass in order to go and buy your supplies or whatever, I, I'm not sure those communities would be able to thrive very well under that sort of superstructure. So I suppose we need to be thinking about protecting ourselves and building our communities locally, continuing to speak out and um, allow and ensure that there are different opinions that are being heard out there. So we don't become, 
totalizing in our worldview in, the, in, in this country, and at the same time, push back against government overreach, the institutional overreach, try and take over some of those institutions and bring back those norms um, and, and try and make them neutral again, if that's possible. Tall order. I think we've got a, a very difficult couple of decades ahead of us, but uh, I don't know, hopefully having a conversation about it gets people thinking and I don't have all the answers, but it's just, it's just to talk about it. Conversations like this are, are really important. Uh, I, I'll, I'll summarize everything right now and just kind of bring us to a close. But Lisa, you need to know that when, you know, when I talk to other individuals in these same topics, everybody is is talking about how do we get back to basics? How, how, how do we get back to where we were? And, you know, it is required, therefore, that we have foundational philosophical theological conversations that that help us recognize where we've been and, and where we need to go. And these are big, big, big topics. You know, um, I, I do think we were coasting for many, many years, you know, a, a good friend of mine, I've used this illustration before, right. But it was, it's the illustration of the prodigal son where, you know, Canada was out and they had left, left, you know, left dad let, or left the queen, left mom. And, and they're, you know, they're out just partying. And you, you as a you as a country can party as long as you want, as long as you have the institutional heritage, as long as you have the inheritance um, of 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 what you've been given. But the moment that inheritance is totally squandered, and now we're seeing that it's it's been squandered and replaced for uh, a new religion. You know, you are left as a nation with well, where do I get my food from? Like, where, where do I, I'm, I'm, hey, the, the swine over there, they, they look like they're eating better than I am right now. Um, and and it, it, it causes you and forces you to reflect on why did we have what we had? Um, how do we get back there? Which means I have to now fight conversations of language and now I have to, I have to speak openly about issues that I, I, I used to not speak about. And, um, and yes, and we have to do, we have to culture build and, 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 and build institutions, even if, you know, some, you know, I, I remember people saying stuff like, well, what if that education doesn't lead to me being accredited? Okay. Well, you know, uh, we've got this great little legal school. It doesn't lead to anything other than you're going to be a great lawyer uh, for somebody at some point, or you're going to at least understand law. Uh, mm -hmm. You're, and you're just not going to be a complete um, arbiter for, you know, the state. So, you know, we have to go back to the value of things. So th these are important conversations. And Lisa, I'm so thankful that uh, you actually woke me up very early on in the pandemic to understanding the relation uh, to our fundamental freedoms, to what we were going through. It was, it, was, it was your initial consultation with us that really helped us understand, wow, we, we kind of knew that culture was shifting, but we weren't. <laughs> recognizing how quickly that was shifting in, you know, right in the context of the changes of law. So, man, we've covered some big topics. I hope listeners, I hope that you, you share this conversation around. That's what it has been. It's been just an open conversation and, and we're, we're uh, attempting to relearn some things that we've forgotten. So Lisa, thank you so much for being on and everybody, thank you for listening. Make sure you give us a five-star rating on Rumble or um, Apple or on the Fight La Feast Network, wherever you get your podcasts. And everybody, as I usually say, to see you later and Godspeed.